All right, happy 4th of July weekend. Can we get a round of applause for America? <laughs> yes, I have my American flag shoes on right now. So uh, I wear them once a year, and it's always this weekend. Um, and I know what you guys are thinking. You're like, weren't you up here last week? Joke's on you. You get me for two weeks. So no, I'm just kidding. I am, I'm super excited and honored uh, to be here with you. As I say, every time I preach, I take it very seriously. And it's an honor that you would come to this church and celebrate uh, this nation's birthday uh, with us. But in honor of this nation, um, I thought since it's our 245th birthday, we'd go through 245 facts about America. No, I'm just kidding. It's going to be, but I do have some interesting facts that I want to share. So there is enough concrete in the Hoover Dam to build a two-lane highway from San Francisco to New York City. Very interesting. The Library of Congress contains approximately 838 miles of bookshelves long enough to stretch from Houston to Chicago. The entire Denver National Airport um, is twice the size of Manhattan and is also the second largest airport by landmass in the world, which blew my mind. Um, in 1893, an amendment was proposed to rename our country the United States of Earth, the audacity <laughs> of our founding fathers. The Statue of Liberty is actually not located in New York City at all. It's technically in Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, the original capital of the USA was in Philadelphia, in 1867, Russia sold Alaska to us for $7.2 million, about two cents an anchor. In the 50 years that followed, America made their money back more than 100 times over. So thank you, Russia. Thank you. <laughs> the American flag has had 27 versions to it. And our most recent one was actually, I think it's like 40, 50 years old, was made by a high school student, which I never knew. Uh, America athletes have won more Olympic medals than uh, any other athlete from any other country in the world. Yep, and we're about to get the Olympics right now. All right. Uh, three out of every four tornadoes in the world occur in the United States. Three out of four. Yeah. This one, this one was shocking to me. Our founding fathers had no idea that dinosaurs existed. Isn't that like mind-blowing? Because it wasn't discovered until 1819 by William Bucklin, and he discovered and named them dinosaurs. So it, I actually looked and I was like, they had to have like seen dinosaurs before that. And it says that like there was a guy that found dinosaur bones in like the 15, 1600s, but he thought it was just a large human. I'm like, really? Is, is that how humans used to look? <laughs> uh, the federal government of America has never declared an official language for us. The 4th of July didn't become a national holiday until 1870. Uh, number 14, Christopher Columbus never set one foot onto American soil. There are over 10 million descendants from the Mayflower. And interesting enough, I grew up, my grandpa always told me that I have like, people, I'm part of my family from the Mayflower. But an interesting story with him, because you know you get that like, spit test now, right? And then it just tells and ruins everything you've been told your entire life. So my grandpa was like, I'm, I'm Native American. So I grew up, I'm like, yeah, I'm Native American. I'm royalty Native American. And, and he goes, he takes the test and it comes back that he has no Native American in it. And it just devastated him. And then like a month later, they called and they were like, we made a mistake. You actually have Native American. And he, and he was like, I told you guys. I told you. Um, Americans will enjoy 150 million hot dogs on the 4th of July. Yes. So technically speaking, our Independence Day is actually on July 2nd, but we credit it to the 4th because it's when it was first signed. And then uh, the founding fathers in the meeting of 1783 decided that the Philadelphia Eagles would always be the best football team in America. 
<laughs> Come on, bring it on, bring it on. <laughs> yeah, except the Cowboys. Yeah. So the Cowboys may be America's team, but the Eagles are God's team. So what's up? <laughs> okay. It's estimated that 2.5 million people lived in America during the Revolutionary War, while England had more than 8 million. So these are just some interesting facts that I wanted to share with you um, about our country and just celebrate it. Uh, But we are in the middle of a series called Teach Me. And the whole premise of the series was to give you guys the opportunity to ask questions that maybe you were confused about with the Bible, maybe contradictory. Maybe you were like, hey, you know, Jesus said this here, but then does this here. So isn't that, you know, hypocritical? And really just shed more light onto what you guys had questions for. And just to give you guys a shout out, we had such a good turnout to questions and and just, you guys are amazing. And thank you for being a part of it. And it actually helped us as pastors to really stretch ourselves in understanding. So we had questions this this week for my message. We had questions that had to do with America, uh, you know, how to raise children in in a society um, that's um, anti-Christian values, or maybe not anti, but pushing those Christian values away. And then, you know, what's made America do this and that and this. And then my mom, I don't know if any of you know my mom, uh, during the holidays, Christmas, she becomes like Mrs. Claus. And then this time of the year, she's like Uncle Sam. Like she loves, she loves America. She's one of the biggest patriots I know. So then she said to me, hey, Dan, you know, it would be a really good idea. What if you talked about America? And he said, she goes, well, what if you talk about what makes America great? And you know, when the boss tells you something, you know, you're like, okay. And I saw, so I was able to pull some questions in from what you guys wanted, but also with what my boss uh, asked me to do. So we're going to talk about what makes America great. But I believe before we do that, I'm going to invite you into kind of how pastors prepare their message mentally, uh, maybe whatever it is, studying. So there's five types of sermons. The first is textual. A textual message would be a lot like if you heard my message last week about the parable of the 10 virgins and the bridegroom and having enough oil in Matthew 25. And the way that I would study for that is that I would solely read that parable. So I read Matthew 25, 1 through 13. I don't know how many times, but a lot of times until I felt like I could walk away being like, this is what the Lord directed me in this message. The next is expository. Expository is kind of like more broader. So maybe a specific book, whether it be James or 1 Corinthians or Genesis, anything of the sort. And the way you would study that is by going through that book and finding what the Lord is saying in those situations. The next is topical, and topical would be what this message is. A topical message is uh, 4th of July, it's Father's Day, Mother's Day, Easter, Christmas, something along the lines of that. The next one would be devotional. The devotional is something that maybe you get in your quiet time, something that you get it in your devotional. A perfect example of this, if you guys have been here for a few years now, uh, my father, Pastor John, went to Israel and had this dream, or not dream, sorry, this word from Genesis about the land of Goshen. And I don't know if you remember, we had the, the apples in the honey and it was talking about how it's the time for us to move and take the land of Goshen, that would be an example of a devotional message coming from your devotion. And then last would be our allegorical uh, sermon. Allegorical would be something, I mean, a perfect example would be when I was, in, uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, I had another youth pastor because we were multi-campus and he preached a lot like this and it was, he would use superheroes, he would use fictitious characters. But the thing that you have to love about it all of these is that it always points back to Jesus and it shows the giftings of each speaker. It shows the giftings of each way that the Lord talks to you, speaks to you, whether it be through a movie, whether it be through a Marvel movie, whatever it may be, that is the beauty of it. 
So with this week, uh, having a topical message, uh, for me, it was stretching. Because I don't know if you guys have heard me speak multiple times or not, but I'm much more textual, uh, expository. I like, to, uh, I like to get into the nitty-gritty and uh, really get it from my quiet time. And I knew that the Lord was stretching me to talk about a topical message. But like I said, the two things that you will know about Jubilee and the people that come up here and speak is, one, they are very translucent. Who they are up here is who, they're out, who they are out there. Another thing is that we always make sure that we're biblically backed in what we're saying, that it's scriptural and that we're not just saying our stories, but leaving out the Bible. So everything that we do comes from the scripture. And it's so easy. What I discovered with making a topical message, it's so easy to fall away from what scripture says and just talk, talking about stories. So I really pushed myself and asking the Lord, okay, what does make America great? And for the people that aren't a part or that aren't American or, you know, come from different countries, guys, America is a melting pot. And if you don't think there's been influence from every country on this planet, you're sadly mistaken. But since it is our nation's uh, birthday, I did want to talk about some of the things that I felt like the Lord said that makes America great. But before we jump in, would you guys pray with me? Lord, you are so good. Uh, we come we come before you, Lord, honoring you as our primary saying, Jesus, we thank you for the freedom that we can come together and that we can celebrate our nation's um, birthday together as a church family. We thank you for those freedoms. We thank you for the rights that were fought for, that weren't given to us. And we pray that we would just honor our forefathers, that we would honor America, and most importantly, we would honor you. So when it comes, in Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, <laughs> I just jumped in. Apologies. It's, oh, it's that type of church. I have to say uh, amen. I can't just jump in. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, okay, all right. Settle down. No, okay. So when asking myself, what makes America great? What are the traits of America? What are the abilities, what are the attributes? What are the things that make America great? You could say stuff like, hard work. We have a hard work ethic. You could say perseverance. You could say fighting for liberty, fighting for freedom. And absolutely, those are things that make America great. But like I said, if I'm trying to keep the scriptural backbone to it, what are the things in the Bible that are mentioned that I see reflecting America in this day and age? And I felt what the Lord said is, Daniel, Americans from our founding fathers, what they've passed down, a generational blessing, is that we have the faith for the impossible. We have the faith for the impossible. And all you have to do, like I said, go to our forefathers. Look at their circumstances. When they decided that they were done with the tyranny of the crown, when they were decided that they were done being told that you have to be a part of the Church of England, you have to do it this way, when, they were, when there was illegal taxation, when there were all these things, they were like, no. Let's separate. Let's have our independence. Let's have our country. The odds in that moment were minute, church. It's so easy to go 250 years later and say, oh, you know, this was just easy. It was given to us. Church, it was not. If you're a betting person and I put Vegas down in Philadelphia or if I put it in Virginia in 1770, I read this article, it says it this way. In 1775, shots fired at Lexington and Concord gave the Americans a 5% probability of winning the war, giving us 95 to 1 odds. I don't know if you guys would take those odds. I wouldn't. It's like taking the Dallas Cowboys to win the Super Bowl. In 1775, Bunker Hill goes badly. The Brits hunker down in Boston. We're at 9%. Later in that year, Ticorona falls to the Yanks who drag canyons to Dorchester Heights, pointing them down at the Brits who evacuate Boston. We're at 15%. In 1776, July, what we're celebrating today Our colonies declare independence. They are united now, but they are weak. We're at 22% chance. In 
1776, August to November in New York Harbor were covered by a, a, a Navy fleet that has never been seen in the New World. So massive and so big, and the professional soldiers there were crazy. And it put us at, sorry, 15%. Brought us back down. Battle of Trenton. Washington fights back and takes the uh, contingent of the Hessians. Hessians were hired assassins, essentially, mostly coming from Germany in that area. The Battle of Saratoga. One British army defeated Burgoyne, while Howe enjoys occupying occupying Philadelphia. That put us at 33%. In 1777 to 78, France, after quietly arming the rebels, take note of Saratoga, and Franklin is a skilled diplomat, and the lonely war becomes a world war. We're at 50%. And I could go on, and this article goes on and on and on, eventually to 1783, where it was, we were going to win. But it's so easy for us to be like, okay, it was, it was, it was going to happen no matter what. Church, we should not be a country today. We should still be a part of the crowd. But it was men and women that were sick of tyranny. They were men and women that had faith in their circumstances and being like, this is going to be impossible. But we serve a God that makes things possible. That we serve a God that doesn't look at our flesh, that doesn't look at nature. We serve a God that says, yeah, it may be impossible for you, but if you have faith in me, I will make it possible. And the men and women just pushed and strived. Church, I, I, am a, I love history and I could not strive to you enough how little of a chance we had to win that war. And even when we started to make headway, how many chances they almost captured Washington and that they had to march thousands of men silently through the the coldest winter on record and they just kept pushing and pushing. Guys, we shouldn't have won that war. And yet we did because we had faith in the impossible. And that faith has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And it's a generational blessing that has been given to us as Americans. We have faith in the impossible. We have faith in the impossible. So where do we go in scripture to see something like this? Would you follow me in Luke 8, 43 through 48? And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When all they denied, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding you and pressing against you. And it's so funny because if you actually imagine it, they say theologians and commentaries that they were probably walking like this. And Jesus asks, who touched me? And you could just see Peter being like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Everyone's touching you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go in peace. So really, if we want to keep this lineage of this faith for the impossible, it starts with the trust in the Lord when it looks impossible. That's one of the ways that our faith will be tested is through the trust. Are we trusting God when it looks impossible? And we have this woman, you can just imagine, for 12 years. Can you imagine that? 12 years of being inflicted by something. 12 years of spending all of her money, everything that she had to be fixed, to be cured, and nothing was working. From the outside looking in, it looked impossible. It looked like a hopeless situation. But then this man from Nazareth comes and said that he's the son of God. And you know, I was thinking while preparing this message, this was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus didn't die on the cross yet and didn't raise from the dead. 
Okay, so he's doing these miracles. Yes, you know, feeding the 5,000 and, and turning uh, water into wine and doing these miracles, but he claims himself as the son of God, which church, that's a huge step to be like, okay, I believe he's the son of God. So it's actually the people in the story before Jesus died on the cross, I think it took more faith for them to believe that he was the son of God than it does for us to believe that he was the son of God. And yet this woman who's been inflicted for 12 years and is hopeless at the end of her ropes is saying, what do I do? And this man from Nazareth just comes and I could just, just picture it, church, this woman who's tried everything. We're sick for a few weeks and then we want to give up. This woman's been sick for 12 years and you could just imagine, oh, it's the son of God. I believe he's the son of God. And you can see just the agony of every step to try to get through the crowd. And then if not even, she's like, I don't even need to talk to him. I don't even need to touch his body. I just need to touch his cloak to be healed. And you see church, it wasn't the fact and the action of her walking through the crowd. It was her faith that healed her. And yet we live in this day and age and we do the checkbox. You know, if I want to see the miraculous, I got to do this. Check. I got to do this. Check. No, church, it's not about what you do. It's about the faith that you have about what he can do. It's all through his faith. It's all about that. And this woman who's desperate is crawling through there and just touches the, 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 the corner of his robe, just touches it and she's healed. Church, where are we? Where's our faith? Do we have faith that even if we're in the presence of Jesus, that we'll see healing? I remember this time uh, when I was a youth pastor, we would do mission trips and I went to El Salvador. And in El Salvador, um, the, the way they do it, you work for it with VCH, which is Victorious Christian Harvesters. And it's, you do, um, it's like drama, which is what the youth do. And then there's a message, altar call, and then a time of healing. And you go to like three different places uh, a day. And it's, you go to the slums, you go to parks, you go to orphanages, you go to schools, you go everywhere. And we were in this park, and I remember vividly like this, this uh, canopy just over us. And this man was sitting in the corner and just sitting there with his legs out. And he just, he just looked like he was in pain. So we got to the end of it. And the, hey, is there anybody that needs healing? And this man, you know, reluctantly raised his hand. So I took some of the youth with me. And I said, okay, let's go over and let's pray for him. Let's pray for him. Let's pray. And we would say, what's wrong with you? And he goes, well, and, and clearly we needed an interpreter because I failed Spanish two times. So <laughs> that yeah, didn't work out. Um, his foot was about, his left foot leg was uh, seven uh, inches or four inches, sorry, higher up than his right foot. So immense pain. You can imagine, I mean, we get adjusted for half an inch. Like, you know, this man, you could imagine the walking, the pain in his back and his hips and everything. So that's why he was sitting and with his legs up. And I said, okay, kids, let's lay hands on him. So we lay hands on him and these youth start praying and they're elegant prayers and they're beautiful prayers. And, 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 but nothing's happening. And I was like, okay, keep going, keep going, keep going. And then I felt like the Lord stopped me and he said, Daniel, it's not about how elegant a prayer is. It's not about how long you're praying, but it's about the faith that you have that I will heal him. Because it says in the Bible, if we have faith the size of a mustard seed that we can move mountains, do we have faith to be healed? 
So I said this to the youth and I said, this is what I want you to do. Instead of trying to pray as long as you can, instead of trying to pray uh, these elegant prayers, what I want you to do is just lay hands on them and say, Lord, it's not about the length of the prayer. It's not about how beautiful it is, but it is about the faith that I have that you will heal him. And slowly but surely, this man, one inch at a time. All right, let's lay hands on him again. Let's pray the exact same thing. Okay, another inch down. All right, let's lay hands on him again. In Jesus's name, it's not about this length of prayer, but it's about the faith that we put in you that you will heal this man. It's down to one inch. All right, let's lay hands on him again. And we said the same exact thing until the point where his feet were completely even and he was walking completely normal. See, that is the faith that we need, church. That's the faith that we need. It's not about the elegance of our prayer. It's not about a checklist. It's not about the action of pushing through a crowd to touch the cloak of Jesus. It's about the faith of knowing that our Lord will heal them. Our Lord is a faithful Lord. That is the Lord that we serve. That's the Lord that we serve. So the first way that we're gonna be tested is through trusting him. And in, in the other way that our faith, I think it comes down to two things, is this. One, it comes down to our circumstances. What's going on in our lives? How that is he, is he gonna test our faith in our lives when it comes to those things? The other way is when we hear from the Lord, okay? Because it's the perfect story of Noah, 500 years old. And God says, I need you to build a boat, I need you to build the boat. And I know this is funny because when I was, I, if, for those of you who know my story, um, I didn't, it's not that I fell away from the Lord, but I just started to pursue my own things. And I wasn't really living a life full uh, towards the Lord. And I remember when I started coming back and pursuing coming to church and working here, uh, I, one of the things that was instilled with me when I was in college, I was like, okay, maybe not all p- a part of the Bible is true. So I remember talking to my sister Katie and I was like, so you really believe that Noah built an ark and it saved everybody. It saved his family. And she's like, absolutely. And I was like, how do you say that? It's because it says it in the Bible. Because it says it is Holy Spirit inspired. See, faith is believing without seeing. Faith is believing without understanding. And that's what I know. There's hard things to understand in here. There's hard things to understand. But we have Noah, 500 years old, and it says that God was so mad at human beings that he regretted making them. That's an evil earth church. And yet he's building. And one of the things that I found interesting, it actually doesn't say how long it took Noah to build the ark, but it did tell you how long it took for the floods to come. So let's say he built the ark in 50 years. Okay, it was 100 years difference between when he started and when the floods came. So let's say he built it in 50, 75, 80, whatever, okay? And in that time where there's 20 years or 50 years of he's waiting, do you really think that he didn't question if he actually heard from the Lord? This man who's on the streets and in the cities telling people to repent. Repent to the Lord. He's mad. He's angry with us. I could tell you for a fact that you would start questioning, did you actually hear from the Lord? In El Salvador, we would see like 2,500 salvations. I went to a mission trip in the Czech Republic, and I think we saw one. I walked away and being like, maybe we weren't called to go to Czech. Maybe I wasn't supposed to be the one that led this trip. Maybe we're called to somewhere else. See, church, you will always have the option to either believe that the Lord is speaking to you or to question that he's speaking to you. And it's your job to, one, decipher if that's the Holy Spirit, if that's God, and then, two, to be obedient. Because the second you start questioning, is that the Lord's voice, then the next time he speaks to you, you're going to be like, yeah, that wasn't the Lord's voice. 
and it becomes this ripple effect and starts going down. So even the smallest things that he's asking you to do, you won't be able to listen because you've doubted yourself in hearing the Lord. But Noah said, I'm not gonna let my flesh come in and tell me that this isn't the Lord. He pushed. So I guess it raises the question to this church. How do you react when the Lord, when you're praying and you have the faith for all these things and the Lord doesn't answer them? How do you react? Six years ago, on June 11th of, of 2015, um, my best friend, his name was Julian, uh, just graduated college from CSU. And anybody that's familiar with the Fort Collins area, they have a great lake up there called Horsetooth. And he was, went up there to, to cliff jump with uh, two other of my buddies. And if you knew Julian, he was so exuberant, the life of the party, like, he was my boy, like my boy. Like we went from, we played football together. We wrestled. Anybody that's wrestled know that you like spend way too much time with the people <laughs> that, on your team. So we were very, very close. And, and um, he, he was with my other buddy, Daniel. And Daniel made a joke and Julian goes like this because he's exuberant and laughs like this because he always was just doing stuff like that. But when he did it this time, his foot slipped and he fell back and hit his head and fell into Horsetooth Lake. And my buddies, um, uh, one of them was Christian, the other wasn't, they jumped in and they tried to find him and couldn't find him. And I was at church working when I got the news and I just broke down. And I know people in here have dealt with death, but church, I was 21 years old and that's for me and I, I don't want to go in other people's stories because I know people have dealt with death at much earlier age. For me, I felt invincible. I felt at that age that, you know, death, anybody, everybody knows that, that death, you, when you're young, you don't think you can die. And I had to take to the Lord with all the promise that this young man had, just graduating college, the people person that he was, how lovable, how likable. How could this happen to him? And I prayed to the Lord, do you want me to pray to revive him? to bring him back to life. And I felt like the Lord said, yes. So I can remember it to this day. We were, it was an open coffin uh, to see uh, just a viewing. And I saw him and just instantly, anybody that's been in that moment, just, it, yeah. so I go over and there's the line and I didn't tell anybody what I was trying to do. I, I didn't wanna, I don't know, it was for me. And I just, I don't know how exactly, I laid my hands on him and just hugged him. And I said, Lord, revive him. Lord, bring him back to life. Lord, bring him back to life. And I know most people were spending like two seconds saying bye and I just stood there and held him for 10 seconds saying, Jesus, please. I have the faith. I know that you will. I have the faith and nothing happened. How would you react? How have you guys reacted? I know it's easy for me as a pastor to be like, oh, it bolstered my faith. Are you kidding brought me to my knees and saying, Lord, why would you tell me to do something like this if you weren't gonna show up? See, churches in situations like that, we have the opportunity to either go away from our faith or we can bolster our faith. See, I walked away saying, okay, I misheard from the Lord. And it's important for you guys to understand that fact and that rule, that sometimes we mishear from the Lord. 
And the thing with what Noah did is regardless of him looking like a fool or not, he kept his faith. And as everyone was passing the open casket with Julian just laying hands, grabbing his hand, maybe kissing his forehead, I stood there and laid and just grabbed him for 10 seconds, however long, felt like an eternity because I knew I looked like a fool. But I did it because I felt like the Lord told me to. Do we have that faith today, church? Do we have that faith that regardless if it comes true or not, regardless if we look like a fool or not, do we hold true to our faith? And this isn't the faith in just believing that Jesus is Lord. This is the faith of healing. This is the faith of the impossible. Do we have that? Let me read a scripture to you real quick. In Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, it says, Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So what our Bible is telling us is that there's certain things that go above our understanding. And we have to be able to accept that. One of my favorite things to say to myself and to people when they ask, when they ask, you know, did this person go to heaven or to hell? I go, thank God I'm not God. Thank God we don't have to make those decisions. What's the point about talking about those things, debating about those things, when it's above our understanding, it's above our intellect? There's certain things on this earth that we will not know until we are in heaven with the Lord. And we have to be able to accept that. So church, do we have that faith still as a culture, as Americans? Do we have faith for the impossible? The next thing that I wanted to talk to you about is what else makes America great is unity. And I know there's people in here right off the bat like, what are you talking about unity? See, I believe that America is a unified country. And I think it's a generational blessing that has been passed down and passed down is the ideals of unity behind this country. Our founding fathers had political turmoil. Somehow we've made it up in our mind that they didn't. George Washington was a part of the Whig Party. Alexander Hamilton started the uh, Executive Party or um, Federalist Party. James Madison and Thomas Jefferson started the Democratic Republican Party. And a lot of the things they fought about is a lot of about what we fought about today. Big government, small government, all those things. But here was the difference. Our founding fathers knew it was for the greater good to be unified than rather to fight over something like this. They, they could disagree and yet still be unified. That they could speak their opinions and yet still be unified. I felt like the Lord said, Daniel, maybe this is lacked a little bit. And I think it's lacked in this way. It tells us that the church needs to be unified. And I think we've leapt, or sorry, let in the spirit of disunity. Because if we can't be unified in here, how on earth do you expect them to be unified out there? If we cannot be unified as a church, how can we be unified as a country? And you might be thinking, you know, the ideals of Christianity and the ideals of a country. Guys, it was never the point of the government for the government to, uh, to, to influence the church. It was the, the job of the church to influence the government. We have to fight for unity. 
In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So it's pretty much saying this, we may disagree, but we won't let, uh, we won't let that get in the way of our love and our devotion to one another. We as the church must fight for unity. And I think this scripture shows us the perfect recipe of how to unify the church, how to unify this country. And the first one is to be humble. Unity requires humility. A humble person is willing to sacrifice their ego and desires for the sake of the group. So how do you keep yourself humble? Are we a humble people? Can we be humble people? Some of the things that I do to stay humble is uh, ever since I was a pastor, I told myself, regardless of, of where and how high I go, that I will never be too good to help stack chairs, to help put away tables, to do any of the, these things, help out. And, and clearly, if it gets in the way of what I'm actually paid to do, then I can't do it. But if I have freedom and I have the opening to help, then I would. Another thing that I've done is I was the facility manager of this building. I have the name tag that says Daniel Leach, facility manager. I hang it up in my office and it will be in my office for the rest of my life. And it's not the fact of being like, oh, it's because you're a facility manager. No, it's because you have to remember where you started in order to keep yourself humble. So that's some of the ways that I do it. Be gentle. A gentle person has a way of calming those around them. They have the ability to deal with the situation in graceful ways. Inevitably, there will be conflict within the church. A gentle person will know the right way to deal with it. Are we gentle people? Are we a gentle people? Be patient. A patient person keeps calm even when those around them are irritating. Are we patient people? (laughs) I think we all struggle with that. Be understanding. People are sinful and will let you down. Knowing that fact, it will help you be understanding when they don't. Don't expect perfection from the church family because you will be disappointed. Are we an understanding people? In Proverbs 18.2, it says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Are we understanding? Are we willing to listen? See, I talked a little bit about this last week, what this culture, our culture has done. It's taken words and redefined words and our biblical words and redefined it to fit their, what they need, what their, their lifestyles are. So example is empathy. They say empathy is you understanding no matter what the choices they make, that it's okay. No, empathy, biblical empathy is coming down to the person and saying this, I understand you, but I'm not changing my values. I love you, but I'm not changing what the Bible tells me is right and what is wrong. That's what empathy is. Are we an understanding people? We must work hard for peace. Unity and peace take hard work. You must be willing to put an effort to make unity really happen. Celebrate each other's unique giftings and speak the truth in love. There will be times that you will need to say hard things to someone. It is important to do this in a loving way. As you do this with one another, God will help you grow and will unite you as a group. I know through all the things that I just said, this recipe of unity, that we have all had these stories of how we deal with the people in these situations. But church, we as the church must fight for unity. It starts with us. And sometimes, somehow we've dumbed down this, inf- that, that the church doesn't have influence out there. Guys, the church has influence. We have influence. And you need to understand that, that we are making a difference. 
but we have to fight for that unity. So the first thing that I said is that, that American, what makes America great is the faith for the impossible. The next is the unity that we have. And then lastly, and I'll hit this quickly, uh, America is great because we're generous. We're generous. For the last 10 years, America has been the most generous country in the world. We gave $450 billion in charity in 2019. 25% of American adults for just the uh, for past few years have volunteered an average of 8.8 million hours valued at $190 million. That's just time spent volunteering. This is one thing that I feel like has been passed down from generation to generation. Look no further than this church. We've raised millions. And you know why we're generous? It's because we're not thinking about just our generation. We're thinking about the next generation. We're thinking, how do we leave this legacy? How are we gonna give the church to the next generation? My father always said this, Daniel, I want my ceiling to be your floor. And that's how every generation should be. Leave the next generation off better. Leave, leave them with an opportunity to grow the church. Yeah. Guys, you are a generous people. And I think it's one of the things that's been instilled in Americans is we're generous. And if you look through the path that I've tried to create for you, I think really this is what comes down to what makes America great. What makes America great is that we were based and found off of Christian beliefs and values. Yeah, amen. Church, and in people that maybe, you know, aren't Americans, I hope you get encouragement from this. Because really what it comes down to, if you have that Christian values, then all these things are applicable to you. And, and it's not for me to say, like clearly other countries have these you know, values and have these abilities, you know, faith in the impossible. I 100% believe that. But because it's our birthday today, I just felt that we would do a topical message about what makes America great. And I said the bottom line is that we start and it was birthed with Christian values. And I just, um, I, I asked the Lord, how, how do you want to close? And, and he just said this, Daniel, go tell him to celebrate this nation. Just go have fun, go to the barbecue, enjoy each, our freedoms, enjoy each other, enjoy the relationship, enjoy the community. So I'll pray and we can get out of here. Jesus, you are so good. We thank you so much just for, like I said, the opportunity for us to come together, the freedom behind it, Lord. We thank you that you've given us this great nation. We thank you that you've put in our blood, that you've put in our values, uh, that faith is, that, that if we have the correct faith, that things aren't impossible. Lord, we pray over the unity of this country. We pray the unity of this country right now and it starts in this church to so start unifying Jesus. Start helping us be an understanding people, a patient people, a humble people. Love on us and do it in a, in a tender and a loving way of showing us how we can grow in these situations. Thank you for instilling these things into us and we love you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys.